0: Now, Scotland's Talk In. Call 0333 2020 401 and join the debate.
1: Hello and a very good Sunday morning to you. Welcome from me, Ali Bally, to a very special edition of Scotland's Talk In. For the next hour, we've got the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, here to take your calls. She was setting out her priorities in Holyrood this week.
2: This government stands for public services. It stands for helping the poorest in our society, it stands for fairness and progressive principles.
1: So whether you want to question the First Minister on her government's position on taxes, Brexit, independence, the NHS, education, or anything else, pick up the phone and call Nicola Surgeon now on 0333 2020. 401. And in the second half of the show, after 11, we'll be finding out how more than a 1,000 Scots have signed up to make life less lonely for someone.
0: We chat about everything, you know, from politics to the X Factor. Uh, even Love Island has popped up in a conversation yeah. once or twice.
1: Our chief reporter, Hope Webb, will be joining us to chat about the success of our Take the Time campaign. And if you're a dog owner, I'd like to talk with you about how your pet copes with fireworks. <laughs> Researchers say that listening to certain types of music, like reggae, can help them relax. uh, Uh, So, with that, calm down your canine. We'll be talking about that after 11. It's Scotland's talking. Good morning. And joining me this morning uh, in the studio is Alan Smith, our political correspondent. Good morning. Good morning to you. How are you? you? I'm very well, thank you. And First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, good morning. Good morning, Ali. So we're all ready to go then. Ready. How are you?
2: I'm very well, thank you. Good
1: for a Sunday morning. For a Sunday morning, <laughs> a absolutely, Sunday
2: absolutely, morning. as well
1: as yeah. can be expected. Indeed. Yeah, Alan, I I... Alan, you, you were with the first minister this week. Yeah, absolutely. We we had
3: a, a visit this week on Tuesday. We went to uh, Auschwitz and to Birkenau um, to visit the, the the camps there. And I thought that would perhaps be a, a a good place to start, first minister, just to get a kind of a, a reflection on that visit. Just you know how you found it and and what you are taking away from that visit.
2: The visit was really really powerful i mean i'd expected to be very moved by it but it was beyond my expectations it's it's a very harrowing thing to do it's it's grim you are uh, in this place which is bleak and you're immediately overwhelmed by the sheer scale of it and uh, come into terms with the fact that so many people died and suffered there but then as you know as we went round you just get all of these glimpses into the individual lives Mm -hmm. uh, of the people who ended up there and it's heartbreaking. Uh, For me and and I'm sure this is true for most people who go there the, the images that were toughest to take were those of children and babies. You know, there was no mercy shown by the Nazis uh, to to younger people. Everybody was treated in the same horrific way. But I guess what I took away from it was that, yes, what happened there was horrific, the darkest period in human history, really. But the Holocaust didn't start there. It started way, way back in everyday anti-Semitism and discrimination and you know we live in an age now where these things are reading their heads again and it's a lesson a really powerful lesson to all of us that we've got to combat and stand up to hatred and discrimination wherever we find it.
3: How big a problem is it for for parties to deal with at the moment because we see every party seems to to have, have, have something to deal with including y- your own party this week?
2: I don't think any party is immune from it. You know, the SNP is a, a big party with well over a hundred thousand members. You know, from time to time we will have issues to confront like other parties do. For me, I, I think the test is how you deal with it and are you prepared to show that you're going to treat issues like that when they arise seriously? Because if you don't then all of the rhetoric is meaningless. So for the SNP and obviously I can only speak for how the SNP deals with these things, we We try to deal with them fairly, due process and giving people uh, fair treatment. And also, you know, we live in a democracy where freedom of speech is an important principle. But on the other hand, making sure that we're not in any way tolerating hate speech or racism or intolerance uh, that causes such misery for others.
3: I know in the the run up to uh, today and and highlighting the fact that you're coming on the programme you know, we get a lot of comments from people, a lot of questions from people. And one of the, the comments that kept coming up, and 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 we know Twitter's a bit of a minefield, mm-hmm. but um, one of the comments that came up about your visit to Auschwitz that, that that your visit was really nothing more than a political stunt. It was just a photo call for you. <laughs>
2: well, well, you were there. You know that's not the case. We spent how many hours there? You know, yeah, several. Yeah. Going round uh, and seeing it. But I think what. You know, firstly, I'm not the first leader to have visited Auschwitz and I, I hope I won't be the last. I think it's something that everybody who gets the opportunity should try to do. But uh, perhaps what's missed in that is I was there, as were you, as a guest of the Holocaust Education Trust. They want people to go to raise awareness of what happened there and to try to then make sure that we learn the lessons. So it was something I was encouraged to do by the organisation that takes thousands of school children there every year and we were accompanied of course by 200 Scottish school pupils who will have come away from that trip with a deeper understanding themselves of the causes and the symptoms of hate and intolerance and every one of those young people will have come back to Scotland hopefully speaking to their families and friends and bit by bit hopefully we're raising an understanding and in future helping to reduce the possibility of these horrors ever happening again.
1: Okay, thank you for that. Okay, just on talking of uh, social media, I just want to clear something up so that our listeners are quite aware of what we do here. Um, oh, well, Alan and I were talking about this earlier before we come on. On Twitter and everything else, First Minister, the, the comments of that uh, all the questions on this programme are set up um, in your favour. If only. <laughs> I mean, I'm open to that suggestion if yeah, you want. When has that happened? Uh, <laughs> sorry, not on this programme. You've got the wrong station. Uh, um, uh, so uh, let me assure you that uh First Minister on our various visits to the station has never once known what the call is going to be about. Or asked or to asked. know. No, absolutely correct. Absolutely. I have had politicians in the 30 years I've been doing this talking programme who have actually refused to come on unless they knew what the, the questions were. But I don't know either. We just go to the call and that's how it works. I suspect
2: <laughs> we'll find out, Ali, in the calls that are about to come that I have not pre-selected <laughs> to these. but oh, the, I the other, hope so. The, the other point is, I think w- it's probably a lesson, both Alan's question to me there and your observation there. I, I'm a great user of social media, Twitter in particular, but we shouldn't get too caught up in some of the ridiculous uh, assertions and debates that take place there.
3: How that's do you so. handle it on, on Twitter? Because obviously, you know, any time, uh, perhaps, if, you know, we've seen it from this programme, advertising the, the fact that you're coming on, the comments that have come in um, and, and and you know perhaps responding not responding to a lot of them, but how do you use first minister? Because I'm, I'm guessing that you know you you you, that you just get a flood of this.
2: Yeah, I mean, so I don't see most of what sort of comes through my Twitter account because the volume of it is too much so with the best will in the world I couldn't. I try as hard as possible to pick up on things that I really do have a duty to, to respond to. Often Twitter is not the best way to respond so sometimes it will be encouraging people and I would encourage anybody who wants to raise a serious issue with me that they want a response to not to use Twitter because I might not see it to email me and, and use another uh, medium but I, I try not to get too dragged into it. I mean I'm in a fortunate, privileged position, I get to meet in in the flesh so many people every day, every week of my life, and that helps me to put some of the the nonsense on Twitter into perspective. The vast majority of people, whether they support me and my party or, you know, sort of oppose me and my party, the vast majority of people in our country are decent, civilised human beings, and and that is a good counterbalance to. Uh, the minority that just hurl abuse on twitter
3: yeah because we've heard from politicians in the past mm. who've had to turn to the police for example for for threats they may have received on twitter is that something you've ever had to direct tweets that way
2: um i, I think there has in in the past been things that the you know may have been looked at in, in that sense i've i've never you know sort of got too uh involved in in that uh, my view is you know i'm a politician i'm a public figure i'm I'm open to scrutiny, so I accept that there's, you know, some of this just comes with the territory, and if I'm not prepared to put up with that, I shouldn't be in the job I'm doing. But when it crosses a line, whether it's me or or somebody else into, uh, you know, death threats or, you know, threats of violence or or misogyny, these kind of things, then, you know, none of it's... We want to live in a civilised society where we can all debate with each other passionately, but keep it civilised. At the end of the day, there's You know, It sounds a bit trite, I'm aware of that But there's more that unites us than will ever divide us And we all want the best for the country
1: Okay, as if to prove this isn't fixed One of our regular callers who upsets an awful lot of listeners (laughs) Is the first one on (laughs) Thanks for the warning That's okay, I I wouldn't have fixed this (laughs) I wouldn't have had him on But he's here Stephen, remember, respect Good morning to you Stephen
4: Morning Ali, how are you today? I'm fine
1: thank you You're through to the First Minister, what's your point?
4: Morning, First Minister. Morning, Stephen. You've
2: had a good build-up there.
4: Oh, well, I'm trying my best here, <laughs> First Minister. What I'd like to say is, I think it have been better taking the 200 children and getting round the local communities in the west coast of Glasgow, right through to Argyll. It's like a cancer. Poverty is rife. People are marching in the streets, from the NHS to school teachers to the local authorities. The people in I would like to see get a wage rise well above the 3% is the cleaners, the unsung heroes that don't get paid at all for looking after their own families, the NHS, just failing them. And we're out there doing the grime, the dirtiest, mankiest jobs that you can, it's it, you can imagine, and we've paid our pittance for it. Who do you work for, Stephen? I work for the local authority. Yeah, and the difference between you and I, First Minister, you're sitting down to a lovely meal, any time of the day, I'm going to reduce counters, or as somebody says before, which I thought was a good word, the shelf of opportunity, because I am on the breadline with my family, and so, due to the high cost of travel, fuel, food, my council taxes going through the roof, TV licences, there's housing, there's loads of stuff in here, Nicola. Yet you're away out first to a holocaust, while the people in this country are starving. Things are bad, Nicola. That's what I'm trying to say to you. And if I had a department for anywhere, I'd be down the road with no pension, no nothing. Yet, the ministers of this country fail. They'll go away. They just get reshuffled, put sideways. They big pensions. And I get nothing. That's why I think all you know, yourself, Nicola, and all your ministers should resign. There should be a re-election within a mandate date, and put people in there in charge, it's caring for the poor. No,
1: Rich. Right, let, let, let the First Minister come back okay. in, because you, you've given quite a few points.
2: There. No, and, and to be fair to Stephen, I think all of the issues that he raises there are, are real issues. I mean, just just let me deal with, the you know, going to ouch, which is an alternative to dealing with these issues. These are not either or. Uh, you know, it's important that as a leader, we experience these kind of things. But, you know, on the issues, some of the issues you've raised there, and I'm I'm, this is not me trying to get off the hook. I'll come on to some of the issues that are my responsibility. But things like fuel prices, pensions, uh, these are not the responsibility of the Scottish Government. I think the way pensions have been uh, dealt with in recent years is is pretty shocking. I know it's not the issue you raise, but particularly the, the WASPy women having pensions uh, stolen from them. But around pay and poverty, you know, the Scottish Government, I, I would say confidently that we're doing more than any other government in any part of the UK. Are we doing everything that you might want us to do? Uh, Of course not, but we for example, the first government in the UK to lift the public sector pay cap because we recognise that public sector workers like you have had it tough for a lot of years, so we want to start restoring the value of your wages. Now, you work for a local authority the negotiation on your pay is between your unions and local authorities, not with the Scottish Government, Uh, but nevertheless, uh, we've Given local government at uh, real terms increases in their budget to make it easier for them to start that process of lifting pay. We're doing more than any other government to try to get more people paid the, the living wage. Uh, we are investing a lot of money every year to try to take away the worst impacts of some of the cuts to welfare, for example, that we've seen uh, imposed by Westminster government. So there's a lot of work going on there. I'd absolutely recognise how tough it is for people out there. I speak to people every day of the week that you know, lets me know how tough it is and we're working really hard as a government within all of the constraints that we're working in to try to address these issues and we'll continue to do that.
1: First Minister, we you know, I I know where Stephen's working and 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 what he's saying there, but you, and and equally what you're saying as well. But just recently, we've seen people from Glasgow taking, you know, working with uh, working with the council there, taking to the streets about their pay, the yeah. years that that has gone on. As first minister, can you not? not knock some heads together and get something that's ridiculous the amount of time to, they've waited on this. It is
2: ridiculous but with the the administration in Glasgow City council right now, I don't need to knock the heads together because at long last they are getting on with it and Uh, doing the work that's necessary to reach a settlement. They've said they'll reach settlement uh, figures with the unions by the end of this year, but there's a process of work that has to be done. The equal pay, and I feel heart-sorry for the women in Glasgow who've effectively had money stolen from them all of these years. Uh, The last administration in Glasgow City Council, and I'm going to call a spade a spade here, the Labour administration uh, went to court, spent more than £2 million dragging them through the courts to avoid paying them what they were due. And, of course, They only had equal pay claims because of a discriminatory pay system that that council administration put in place back, I think, in in 2006, where, frankly, male workers were given benefits and, and pay boosts that women didn't get. So the SNP administration came into office uh, last year and immediately uh, said that they wanted to sort this. So they stopped the the defence of the court action and they got to work. And they're doing the work that will resolve this. And uh, the reason I don't have to go in there and knock their heads together is because I know the leader of the council, Susan Aiken, is 100% committed to giving those women what they deserve.
1: Okay, thank you, Stephen. Let's go to Catherine. Catherine, good morning.
2: Good morning. Good morning.
5: Good morning, Catherine. Good morning. I'm really concerned about our NHS and the services that myself and thousands of others depend on as they've been radically cut and the fact that um, some patients have actually been left suicidal and can't get the care that they need despite, you know, government-backed reports saying that there should be less opioids prescribed and other treatments and holistic methods available. And our multi-award-winning hospital um, had all its inpatient facilities closed last year. And um, we in 2010, we actually had 22 nurses. We've only been left with two full-time and one part-time. Is this a homeopathic No, period, it's doctor? the NHS Centre for Integrative Care. It does yes, much, much, much more than that. And anybody that ever calls it that is Sorry. only trying to do it down, really. I wasn't trying to do it <laughs> down, incidentally. Um, and um, and we've also lost seven doctors, and only one has been replaced. And that's, this is despite me approaching. I mean, I came on this show over, um, three, over, I think it was four years ago, and spoke to you, and you said to me you'll put me in touch with people, and you know, it, it, it was dreadful what happened there, and it's particularly the way the consultation was handled. And, and, and not just for myself, but for other, you know, other services that were going through the consultation process at the exact same time, it was totally flawed, flawed, totally biased, and, and, and totally shocking. And as I say, patients are are, are actually suicidal. And these patients have got long-term chronic conditions. And I've, I've heard you stand up in Parliament and say that these complex patients, you know, cost the NHS a lot of money and that's where the resources should be put. Yet that is not what's
2: actually happening.
1: Okay, Catherine, let the First Minister come in so we can get some thank, calls in.
2: Well, thank you for phoning in, Catherine. I, I remember speaking to you one of the previous times I was on uh, this show. Look, I, I know, and you know, I'm an MSP in Glasgow, I know that the Centre for Integrative Care, I called it the Homeopathic Hospital because it's what a lot of people refer to as it wasn't intended to do it down at all. Um, I know there's strong feelings and strong support for that. Patients who have had care there uh, have nothing but praise for it. The the health board went through a consultation. I absolutely recognise that if decisions are taken after a consultation that people don't agree with, they can often feel as if that consultation wasn't fair. And I understand that. But the, the health board took decisions that they thought were right to give patients access to the, the best care with a focus on, on care rather than inpatient care uh, there. So they've taken those decisions uh, and they will have taken account of uh, not just patient opinion but clinical opinion as well but i i recognize your strength of feeling around this and and i accept that we're probably not going to entirely agree uh, on the position uh, that was arrived at but in terms of the health service overall uh, we, we as most countries face at the moment uh, the challenges which you know are good challenges to have of a, an aging population which is putting lots of demands in our health service but we're putting in the money uh, and the resources and the planning uh, and part of making sure the health service can cope with that is, and I suppose it's what you're talking about as an example of this, it's about redesigning how care is delivered so that there is a much more focus of care in the community, day case uh, and outpatient care rather than where it can be avoided of having patients in hospital for long periods.
1: Okay, thank you for that. Let's go to Margaret <laughs> next. Hello, Margaret.
2: Hi there.
6: Good morning, First Minister. Good morning, Margaret. Um, I have a question. You're just back from Auschwitz and I can, can I think that's a great thing. I've been myself, very harrowing experience. Um, my question is, back in the 90s, when Rolls-Royce workers discovered they were making components for aeroplanes that Pinochet and the Chilean regime were using against civilians, they downed tools, and that was amazing. Yet today in Scotland, we have a company, Raythorn and Fife, and there might well be other companies as well, that are making arms that are sold to the Saudi government, that are used against the people of Yemen. Why is the Scottish government giving this company, this multi-million dollar international company, grants from the public purse?
2: Okay, th- thanks Margaret. Can I be very clear about this because it, it's a very important issue and I feel very strongly when I see the images of, of what's happening in, in Yemen, for example, and you know, they're, they're images that are haunting for all of us. The point I want to be really clear about is that the Scottish Government or our enterprise agency, Scottish Enterprise, we do not provide funding for the manufacture of So if you take Raytheon, for example, any support that the Scottish Government gives is for non-military uses and is to help focus on diversification uh, away from uh, military into non-military areas. So, for example, that might be things like uh, investing in research and development projects on commercial aviation rather than military uh, aviation. So the Scottish Government focus is about trying... uh, support companies to move into other non-defence related areas and, and the point I want to absolutely stress is we do not uh, support uh, through government funding the manufacture of weapons.
1: Does that answer your question then Margaret?
2: I, I absolutely understand that
6: diversification but at the end of the day they are still making arms that are being used in the Yemen against the civilian population. The Quite honestly, your answer, is, it's absolutely, why would a multi-million international, this, this company is worth billions, and you're, we are giving them grants to diversify. If they wanted to diversify, they would do it. They are still making it. The bottom line is they are still making arms that are being sold to the Saudi government that are using them against civilians. We in Scotland should be taking a stand against this.
2: I you know, completely understand your strength of feeling and on on many aspects of this I absolutely agree with you we have a duty our enterprise agencies have a duty to try to support uh, the the employment of people here when companies are engaged here employing people and we think the best way to do that is to support companies like this into areas where they're diversifying away uh, from arms manufacture we call on the UK government and this is not something the Scottish government can do uh, unilaterally or indeed not something the Scottish government can do at all we can't ban the sale of arms to Saudi Arabia uh, but we think I think the UK government should do that so that these companies can't be uh, supplying uh, arms to Saudi Arabia that then can be used to kill people in the way that distresses all of us. So again, you know, I, I've got a lot of sympathy for the points you're making in, in general terms and that's why we're very clear that the Scottish government does not, through any of these funding streams that we have, uh, support the manufacture uh, of weapons. Our job is to support economic activity and employment in Scotland as much as we can.
1: Margaret, thank you very much indeed uh, Just a reminder, the First Minister is with us through to just before 11 If you've got a question you would like to put to the First Minister then uh, give us a call now Various ways you can do it You can do a call on 0333 2020 You can text your question I'll try and get to it on 61054 Start your message with Ali And we're also on Twitter Hashtag Scotland's Talking. Back in a moment Scotland's Talkin the podcast. Scotland's talking. I'm Ali Bally. A very good morning to you. It's 10.30. With me in the studio is our political correspondent, Alan Smith. And taking your calls is First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon. Right, let's go back on the calls then. Uh, lots coming in, which is great. Uh, Phil Monk is here. Good morning, Phil.
7: Good morning, Ali. Thank you for taking me on the show.
1: That's OK. You're through to the First Minister. What's your question? Uh,
7: good morning, First Minister. Good for morning. I respect for taking these calls. Uh, very much sir. Um, I'm actually the founder of a community campaign group called We The Sign Have a Human Sovereign Right to Cannabis. And many of my members are actually your constituents, so we actually represent the same people. And they've actually called me today and asked me to phone to speak with you about the new laws that were passed on the 1st of November for the legalization of cannabis-derived products for prescription, Uh, basically because this denies patient autonomy and will leave millions at risk of prosecution, eviction, unemployment not to mention unnecessary suffering pain and potentially even death. Now, although there's no specific um, conditions list for these prescriptions, only three situations will be granted uh, permission for access to cannabis. This will be severe epilepsy in children, nausea for chemo and MS for for some people with MS. Uh, And that's only with a GMC-registered specialist, and that's only when they believe that it will also be of your benefit. Um, So this is basically going to leave so many people left in the situation we've been in for the last 20, 40, 60, in fact, 90 years, where we've been choosing cannabis instead of side-effect-ridden pharmaceutical drugs, and we will still be prosecuted for this. Now, just to give you some figures, in 2006... Can you just get to the Sony Phil, but can you get to a point yeah, for you? Yeah. you know, but, well, how, how can you move forward to help your people and my people? So that um, because there's no list for conditions, mm. there's no way to actually de- define who is a medicinal cannabis user and who isn't. Okay. And not everybody has the luxury of being so sick as to get a specialist like anxiety and depression, mm. for example. So can you not push for the decriminalization of cannabis and allow people to grow their own as they have been doing for years and also allow the prescribed access for those that don't have the knowledge or skills to care for themselves? Okay.
2: OK, thanks for your question, Phil. Can I just, in general terms, firstly, you know, set out my own view of these issues, and then I'll come on to the detail of your your question. In broad terms, and I stress in broad terms because there's a lot of complexities uh, lying underneath the surface of this issue, I, I support uh, access to, to cannabis and uh, medicinal derivatives of cannabis uh, for medicinal use. Obviously, there's got to be appropriate regulation of that. Uh, I am not, and I've you know, just given you my, my straightforward personal view here, I'm not in favor of the more general decriminalization of, of cannabis, um, in any event, that is not uh, something that lies within the responsibility of the Scottish Government. That, as you well know, the classification of drugs is uh, a responsibility of the Westminster Government. I think what you've described there is uh, ha- has been a decision, as I understand it, taken at the Westminster Government level. You've raised a number of issues there that I don't even want to try to kind of get into, fine detail about today. But if you. If you want me to, I'm I'm more than happy to to look into the particular issues you've raised uh, and consider whether there is a case that the Scottish Government uh, thinks it's appropriate to make to the UK Government about whether or not they should be looking at further changes. So if you want to uh, leave your your details with the radio station, they can pass them to me and I'm more than happy to come back to you with a more considered response to some of the detail of of what you're raising, because I don't think I would do justice to it to try to address it properly today.
3: I know you said on a a kind of personal Mm -hmm. viewpoint there that that you're not in favour of decriminalisation. If you did have the power to do that, you wouldn't be in favour of doing so. Where where does that kind of personal belief of of not being in favour of decriminalisation of cannabis come from?
2: I have a concern, and I'm sure Phil would... Sort of take me on in this, and and it's a, a legitimate debate, and I'm I'm not saying there's an absolute right or wrong. I, I have a concern. There's there are uh, a number of suggestions that use of cannabis can create, for example, mental health issues. Um, and I, I would have a concern that if we were to decriminalise cannabis, then 10, 20 years from now, we would be dealing with some of the the implications of that. Uh, that you know, I wouldn't feel comfortable with supporting at, at this stage. I also. I also think, and, and this is perhaps less of a scientific uh, argument, and I absolutely accept that. But I, I think we we run into some difficulties. I think with the messages that we're trying to get across to young people. You know, we we say to young people, "Don't take drugs." We try to encourage young people not to smoke and I think for a government then to be generally decriminalising cannabis I, I think risks confusing some of those messages that we're trying to give to to young people and that would be another concern but as I say that's not based on this scientific evidence but Those arguments are separate to the issues around use of cannabis for medicinal purposes and also, which I think is the point Phil's making, about some of the medicinal products that are derived from cannabis that can be prescribed today. And I do think that is a completely different argument.
3: Yeah, because you've been pushing for um, certainly the Scottish government's been pushing for control over over this as well. So, would you do anything differently then from the UK government when it comes to, to, in particular, the medicinal use of cannabis?
2: Yeah, so I think the kind of points that Phil's raising, I as I say, I don't I don't want to start to go into them in detail today because I'm not uh, I'm not uh, able to sort of do that. That's something I would want to look into. But I think we, if we're going to have the the, the prescribing options, if we're going to have cannabis. Uh, use allowed for medicinal purposes it's it's right that that is properly regulated and that some of what i hear phil describing there as some of the pitfalls and and some of the perhaps unintended consequences of that are properly looked through but you know what we would do differently in the fine detail of that i would really need to kind of have a closer look at it before trying to answer that definitively
1: okay thank you very much indeed thanks to phil for that as well scott mcpherson's next on hello scott hello you're through to the first minister what's your point Good morning, First Minister.
2: Good morning.
8: Um, my point is really regarding the parking charges at certain hospitals. Um, I do believe you understand that you were the health secretary way back in 2011 and raised the problem regarding the reduction of all these charges. Unfortunately, it's never changed it's for 13 years exactly the same as what it was. It's got a PFI, which ends in 2035. Um, the only concern is really because of all the nurses are concerned that the prices are basically increasing all the time. Um, it's having a burden on their salaries. Really, it's becoming an issue that they can't afford to actually pay to come to their work. Um, the problem was actually raised, I think, by Sandra White, I think, in Parliament, but mm-hmm. nothing came out of that. Um, I was just defending your views. Can anything be changed mm-hmm. um, regarding this uh, problem they're having continuously? There is only three hospitals within yeah. uh, Scotland, you know yourself, um, but we're just trying to see if there's anything can be done to actually reduce the, the charges within the NHS.
2: Okay, thanks for raising that, Scott. It is an issue that I know is of of a lot of concern to people who work in uh, these three hospitals. Just for the benefit of listeners, we abolish car parking charges generally. Um, I was Health Secretary when we did that a few years ago. But there are three hospitals, as Scott rightly says, Edinburgh Royal Infirmary, Glasgow Royal Infirmary and Ninewells Hospital in Dundee uh, that are uh, private finance initiative hospitals, which include the car parks. Now, these PFI projects predate the SNP's time in government but we looked very closely at this at the time that we uh, abolished car parking charges and just to be blunt about it to buy out those PFI contracts or to uh, modify them in a way that would have allowed us to take away the car parking charges it would have I can't remember the exact figure, but I don't think I'm exaggerating when I said it was, would have been tens of millions of pounds that we would have had to take out of patient care in order to do that. Now, we made a judgment at the time that that was not uh, the the appropriate use of, of public money, but you know periodically we do have issues expressed about concerns when car parking charges go up Uh, given that you phoned in and raised it this morning scott i'm happy to undertake to go and have another look at the particular i'm guessing because you mentioned sandra white might be guessing wrongly that it's the glasgow royal infirmary that you're particularly concerned about so i'm happy to go away and look at that and see if there's representations we can make about the level the charges have got to
1: Uh, can i also just point in here that we (coughs) in dundee the Nine Wells Hospital, as you, as you rightly say, comes into this agreement mm-hmm. as well. And the uh, local paper, the Evening Telegraph, has ran a campaign, an excellent campaign, recently against the charges, which went up on the, uh, I think it was the first of November last week, anyway, yeah. um, and ran an excellent campaign with uh, getting petitions, etc., even down to taking the petitions down to the uh, car park company's head office in Islington, was basically thrown out the door you know and it seems to be just contempt as well by those companies they, they re, there really is not a lot you can do because i can understand you know when people have talked about that this on this program before it is i say well do you want that money to come out of patient care and that's what would happen wouldn't
2: these it? these pfi contracts should never have been entered into in the the way that they were and you know this is not just you know the the, the issue of pfi This historic pfi deals goes much wider than than the issues around these car parking charges, but yeah, they, these are big issues. Look, I, you know, I will have a fresh look at whether you're absolutely right. We we don't have the power just to get rid of them without spending large amounts of money. That our judgment, and it is a judgment, it, it wouldn't be the right thing to do in terms of the expenditure of that money. But I'll have a fresh look to see whether we can make uh, new representations to the companies concerned to see if we can get any movement there. And again, Scott, if you want to leave your details, I'll uh, get the health secretary to write back to you if it had a chance to do so.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Scott, for raising that one. Uh, let's go to Patricia next. Hello, Patricia. And, oh, there, there we are. Right, we've got you now, Patricia. How are you?
6: Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Good,
1: you're through to the First Minister. Your point, please.
6: Hi, Nicola. Hello. I'm one of the shinting ladies last week on Equal Pay.
1: Mm-hmm.
9: And I think I speak for myself and most of my colleagues. When I say 12 years is long enough, and we also feel that the leader is not strong enough against the old Labour councillors who are still in Glasgow City Council. We feel that she is still listening to them, who, as you know, have fought us all these years against everything that we're entitled
5: to. Could I have your opinion on that, Nicole? Oh. Well,
2: Let me deal with that in two ways. Firstly, I absolutely agree with you that you have been treated appallingly, and 12 years is is too long. And, you know, I, as leader of the SNP, as First Minister, I want to see you and all of your colleagues get the money that you are due, and I want to see that happen as quickly as possible. I don't agree about the, the strength of the leader of the council. I know Susan Aitken. I've known Susan for a long time. She's a I'll be transparent about this, she's a friend of mine, she's a colleague, but she's a she's a tough cookie and I'm convinced she's got a grip on this. What I would say is I don't expect you to take my word for that or her word for that. You will not believe that perhaps until you see the, the colour of the money and you're perfectly entitled to take that view, but I am convinced that Susan is going to fix this uh, and I'm convinced she's going to do that in a way that is fair and just to all the women concerned and I suppose all I'd ask and I I totally understand your frustration so I could understand if you say well you know we're by that but just give her a chance she's when she took office she had to get rid of the court uh, actions she then as you know there has to be a process we can't settle uh, the the claims until there is a a sort of assessment done of what the value of the claims are. And that means quite a lot of detailed technical work about comparator pay rates. That that work is being done. And I know Susan is absolutely 100% determined to do this, and I believe she will.
1: Okay, thank you. We'll take another quick break. And we have uh, Karen on, who's going to talk about... um, Well, I don't know what she's going to talk about. We'll find out in a minute, actually. (laughs)
10: You're listening to Scotland's Talkin', the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talkin'.
1: First Minister Nicola Sturgeon taking your calls this morning uh, for the next uh, five or six minutes left. goes very quickly. Karen, good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. You're through to the First Minister. What would you like to ask? First
9: Minister, firstly, I would like to ask you what you can do about carers in Scotland. I know you've given us the, the wee supplement. Payment, mm-hmm. but ESE and carers allowance is all I have to live on, and my daughter is a full time job. I have to work and mm-hmm. I struggle, I really struggle financially.
2: Well, th- thank you, Karen. And ca- can I say, firstly, thank you for what you do as a carer? You know, you and the thousands of other people across Scotland who care for loved ones uh, and save, frankly, the health service and local councils a fortune. Uh, I know you do it of love, but you still you know, make a huge contribution. So thank you for that. Uh, we want to, to help carers as, as much as possible. There's a lot of things that we've done in recent years to try to make sure that carers themselves get more access to appropriate health care, you know, that the GPs, for example, are being vigilant about the impact of caring responsibilities on the health of someone. Most recently, as we've taken over responsibility for uh, carers allowance, we have introduced the new carers allowance supplement and most carers who get carers allowance will have received that over the last few weeks. And that's given carers an extra four just over 400 pounds every year. It's not a fortune, but it's a small way of saying thank you for what you do and helping out a little bit. Over the next couple of years, we'll take more responsibility for some disability payments and we hope to try to improve the way they're administered to help not just carers, but uh, carers within that. I hope that one day in the not too distant future, uh, Scotland will have complete responsibility for the welfare system so that we can make sure that looking after people properly, dignity and respect and proper treatment for people who contribute so much like you do is absolutely the heart of everything we do. But on the way to that, we will continue to take whatever steps we can to make life that little bit easier for carers.
1: Karen, thank you for calling in because I know it was um, you know, hard for you to do that. Uh, what the First Minister said there is things that she's hoping to, going to be able to do in the future. Um, you're struggling now. Have Have you asked for help? How, you know, you're know, you saying that the carer's allowance is the only thing that you're living off. Have you gone to Citizens Advice or someone like that to say, am I getting everything I'm entitled to?
9: Yes, I have. I also get um, employment support allowance. I do get that to top up the carer's allowance. But it really is not. You're stuck between a rock and a hard stone. You can't mm-hmm. take a job because you'll lose. You, you can't take even a part-time job because you will lose money again, yeah. and then you're looking for family, whatever I've got, to go and deal with my daughter mm-hmm. while I'm out trying to get away from the world get away from what's going
2: on in my head, Martha. Yeah, it's
9: it's really hard.
2: I know. I'm aware that some of what I'm saying here, Karen is not of immediate help to you, and I'm you know I'm acutely aware of that. We've only taken responsibility for carers allowance and we are in the process as i say of taking over some of these other benefits so over time we want to to address some of these things and the carers allowance supplement is a sort of early down payment on that but some of the other things that in the fullness of time we want to look at are rules of eligibility around carers allowance the point you make is a perfectly reasonable point about you're kind of caught between a you know rock and a hard place you can't take work because then you lose out and so These are the kind of things we want to try to smooth out and make easier. It's going to take us time to do that, and I recognise that's hard for people in your position, which is why we were so keen to get the carers' allowance supplement up and running as quickly as possible, just to try and, I suppose, demonstrate good faith that we want to sort these things, but also to give carers that little bit extra uh, in their pocket.
1: Can I just go to... Thank you, Karen. Can I go to another uh, Karen here, which has come up and a text that says, can I ask the First Minister what help she plans to offer Mesh injured patients after her apology to them for all they have endured? Will she help get Mesh uh, a recognised medical condition to help them apply for Social Security payments when they are no longer able to work due to Mesh surgery?
2: Well, we are looking just now, so I'll work my way back on this question. We This was raised uh, with me First Minister's questions uh, last week, the week before, um, and I've agreed that the Social Security Cabinet Secretary will look at uh, access to blue badges, for example. So I think Karen's question there uh, widens that a little bit. Is there work the Scottish Government can do to uh, get those who've suffered through MESH procedures able to access wider benefits? So I will take that away and have a discussion about whether there's more we can do there. Generally, we've effectively uh, put in place a ban on uh, these MESH procedures uh, and that will only be lifted when we have in place what's called a restricted use protocol uh, where the procedures can only be used in the very, in very, very limited circumstances where it's, uh, and this is evidence that it's the only possible procedure that can provide relief for a patient and the patient has given proper consent and fully understands uh, the implications of the procedure. So that works ongoing, but that ban is in place just now. We're also seeking to try to persuade uh, the medicines and Healthcare regulatory authority that's the body that licenses medicines and, and health care devices we're trying to persuade them we don't control them they're a reserve matter to the westminster government but we're making a case to them that they should be more effectively uh, banning these devices and uh, just as recently uh, as the last couple of weeks i think the, the health secretary has made a, a fresh approach to them to make that argument
1: thank you very much indeed back on the phone lines here's petra Good morning, Petra.
2: Good morning. Good morning.
1: You're through to the First Minister. Your question, please.
2: Yeah, good morning, Nicola. First, good morning. Before I, before I ask my question, I would just like to give you a compliment for the great work you do for Scotland. Thank you. Um, but there's one thing, and um, this recent incident of trophy hunting on the Isle of Islay um, has upset me very much Mm -hmm. and I think it upset many people in Scotland Um, and as a German living in Scotland um, I feel quite uncomfortable with the level of hunting that is going on Mm -hmm. in Scotland every day so I I really think it wasn't an
9: isolated incident and I wonder what the Scottish Government is going to to protect wildlife
2: a bit better in Scotland Thank you for your call Petra and and thank you for your kind comments at the start Um, the images that you're referring to of uh, the effectively, you know, trophy hunting, being sort of glorified, it, they upset me as well, those images, they weren't nice images. And um, to cut a long story short, I made a commitment that day when people were understandably upset to say the Scottish government was going to have a, a look at whether there was more we can do here, and the Environment Secretary is currently uh, doing that just now. I mean, we have a situation, like most countries, all countries will do, where uh the responsible culling of certain animals is necessary for uh, sustainable land management, uh, but those images don't strike anybody as falling within that category. Um, and I think it's that that we need to, you know, take a look at. I'm not—I can't give you any commitments about what action we will take right now because we're still in the process of looking at, at what uh, changes might be appropriate to the law. But again, that's something I'd be very happy to keep you updated on.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Petra, for raising that. Um, Let's go to John Lloyd. John, good morning.
2: Morning, Nicola. Uh, John John. from Dunfermline. I've been an
10: SNP member since 1974, so you're going to get my vote anyway, you know. Um, Can I just say, I have got a concern, and Mm -hmm. that is in recent weeks there have been two major reputable opinion polls which have shown support for a smacking ban at 30% now legislation at the moment is totally adequate and i notice that the name of the bill which is being examined by your colleague ruth Maguire, is the children equal protection from assault bill that's nonsense it's not assault the legislation at the moment is adequate if you were to use an implement you'd find yourself in the sheriff court you might find yourself at her majesty's pleasure cruelty and neglect of children was banned in 1937 why are we doing this when so many of our majorities are flimsy going into a possible general election next year?
2: Well, sometimes, John, and firstly, thank you for your long-standing support. I really uh, appreciate it. Um, sometimes you have to kind of come at issues based on what you think right and wrong, appropriate and inappropriate. And, you know, while I'm a politician to my fingertips, you can't always judge issues on the basis of, you know, electoral advantage or, or disadvantage. And, and that uh, is, is just sometimes tough just as a point of fact and this is not me trying to dodge your question because I'm about to answer your question this is a a private members bill that's coming through parliament uh, from John Finney who's a green MSP I've indicated that the SNP is supportive of that so I'm not trying to get off the hook but it's it's not an SNP uh, or Scottish government uh, initiative and basically at its heart it is about giving children the same protection as adults get because right now there are uh, there is a situation where you could uh, you know, smack a child that if you did the same to an adult, you would get prosecuted, but you wouldn't if it was a child. And that's all it is. It's about saying children should have the same protection in the law as adults do. And, and I think that's right. I think in you know, 2018, we shouldn't allow children to have lesser protection under the law. But I recognise this is an emotive issue. This is absolutely not about trying to interfere with parenting or, or tell parents how to, to raise their kids. It's simply about saying, you know, adults, children, we should all have the same protection when, when it comes to uh, not being assaulted.
1: John, thanks for raising that. I'm afraid uh, I I can't allow you time to come back simply because, as always, uh, when the First Minister is on, we get inundated. We could keep going with the the amount of calls we've got sitting on the switchboard and also the the comments we can keep going for the next hour. Um, But unfortunately, we have run out of time. We've
3: almost got through a whole hour without uh, talking about Brexit as well, or, <laughs> well, or the constitution. <laughs> but I know this afternoon you, you, you're heading off to uh, the, the National Re- Can- Cancer Research Institute uh-huh. in, in Glasgow, you're giving a speech there and, 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 and Brexit no doubt will be the, the topic there and, and, and you've issued a warning today or, or certainly a call uh, of action from the, uh, from the UK government.
2: Yeah I mean I'm speaking at this major cancer conference in Glasgow this afternoon and you know there'll be a whole range of issues discussed there. Scotland's you know a leading country when it comes to to research into uh, the the reasons for and and possible cures for cancer but one issue I think uppermost in everybody's mind just now is the possible impact on research of Brexit and also supply of medicines and you know these problems could be uh, resolved at a stroke if the UK government took a sensible approach if they're intent on leaving the EU, which they are, uh, I regret that, if they were to stay within the single market and customs union, these issues would be resolved. And I uh, hope even at this late stage, that's the common sense approach that we uh, managed to see prevail.
3: Yeah, a lot of people have been talking about a people's vote and support for mm. a for a vote on, on the, the the terms of a Brexit deal. I, I know you announced recently that the SNP mm. MPs could vote in favour of that. But we've seen comments from the likes of Pete Wisher mm. this week, who, who thinks it might be a bad idea. So. It would seem you're not completely united on that front.
2: Look, you know, these are difficult issues. These are complex issues. We're living through unprecedented times. It's hardly surprising that there's different views on these things. And, that, you know, it's a legitimate view. Overall, I think what we've and we're see we see lots of coverage in this morning's papers about the shape of the deal that might be emerging between the UK and the EU. And, you know, Theresa May will be absolutely determined to tell the House of Commons that it's a choice between this and no deal. And I think that's false. Uh, the House of Commons shouldn't get into the position of accepting a bad deal and what looks as if it's emerging is a hodgepodge uh, deal that will give no clarity about the longer-term relationship between the UK and the EU. The House of Commons shouldn't be effectively blackmailed into voting for that because of the threat of a no deal. Instead, the House of Commons should be saying, look, there are other alternatives. We could extend Article 50 to get uh, more time. We could put customs Union and Single Market back on the the ballot paper. And given that, you know, whatever people voted for in the Brexit vote, I'm pretty sure most people didn't vote for the UK to get permanently worse off, which is what is happening. So another option is to give people the chance to have the uh, another say on this. So there are options here. And I hope the House of Commons doesn't get uh, sort of misled down this path of thinking it's fire or frying pan. That's in nobody's interest.
1: First Minister, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the programme and taking the calls as well. Uh, Most appreciate it and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank you.
2: Lovely to talk to you, thanks. Thank
1: you. Bye-bye. Nicola Sturgeon and Scotland's Talking continues right after the news at 11. Uh, Alan, thank you for joining us today as well. Uh, More subjects on the way.
10: Scotland's Talking,
1: the podcast. Uh, Robert McGowan says, uh, you should have given the First Minister another hour on the programme. Yes, we know, but we are restricted to the time that she can give us and uh, most appreciate it as well. Uh, but thank you, uh, Robert, for your comments there. Let's uh, talk about fireworks in the in the uh, neighbourhood in a few moments. But first, I, I want to go back. Uh, earlier this year, you may remember, we launched our Take the Time campaign. This was investigating loneliness across scotland it was the idea of our chief reporter hope webb and this is befriending week so we thought we'd get hope back in again she's been hearing from those whose lives have been changed thanks to it so hope good morning first of all hi Uh, thanks for having me and thanks for hanging on (laughs) so uh just remind us what this was all about
0: Yeah so like you say this campaign was launched back in February and now it really came about because of a Sunday night that I had. I had been visiting my sister, I had come back to my flat in Edinburgh expecting to go into my flat, have a normal night, maybe make tea, put the telly on. Um, But when I walked in the front door at the bottom uh, of the stairs in the the block of flats I found my elderly next door neighbour. I had fallen down the stairs. She was at the bottom of the stairs. Luckily, she wasn't that injured, um, but I had to sit with her while we waited for an ambulance for a number of hours. And uh, in those number of hours, I found out her life story. Um, She had been a dance teacher, but she now lived alone after losing her husband, I think about 12 months ago. Um, But it just made me think how can I possibly live next door to somebody for all this time and have no idea who they are or really that they spend the majority of their day alone and it just got me thinking about how many people must also be in this situation and so I had come into work and I had told this story to my colleagues and it just so happened that a former colleague of mine had had a very similar situation with a neighbour, an elderly neighbour of his as well. So we just had a little think about what can we do to highlight this issue, look into it a little bit more and possibly make a difference and that's kind of how the, the Take the Time campaign came about.
1: And it's not just the elderly either, is it, Hope? It's it's younger people as well come, come into that category where they are lonely.
0: Well, that's the thing. It's a little bit of a rabbit hole, really. Once we started to look into it, it really opened your eyes as to just how many people can suffer from loneliness and isolation. I think elderly people are the, you know, the, the category that first come to mind. But you've got young people, for example, um, heading off to university in a brand new city. They don't know anyone. That can be quite a daunting experience for people like that. You've got single mums who maybe have partners away at work and then they have a new baby and, and all they do is stare at a baby for X number of hours a day. Um And they can suffer from loneliness. Really, anyone can suffer from isolation. Um, And it definitely opened my eyes hearing lots of different stories. Um, I investigated it and and spoke to lots of different people across Scotland. And we told some of those stories in in a week-long series of reports back in February. Um, I have one here. Now, this is 92-year-old Davy Campbell. He is from the Craig Miller area of Edinburgh. He unfortunately lost his his wife and uh, he now lives alone. And the only people he sees during the week are staff members and a few neighbours at the adult daycare centre in Miller. And he's only able to go there on a Wednesday, I think it is. So once a week he comes in and he has interaction with other humans. So I sat down with him at that centre and had a little bit of a chat of, of what it's like to, to be Davy, really.
10: 2006, my daughter's... Uh, District nurse, which is away down in England, working, and I'm left alone.
0: And is it quite tough not having anybody in the house?
10: You get bored sitting on your own, talking to yourself, you know. And uh, it's so lonely.
0: When you haven't been here for a few days, how how long can it go when you haven't seen anyone?
10: No, go, uh, go any length of time. No,
0: because it's the only people I've got any contact with. It's a lonesome life. And that story is is so touching. I mean, I still tear up and, and thinking about it and hearing him. But he's just one person of so many people out there that unfortunately have to go through this. You know, he's just one story. There's so many other stories out there. And like I say, it's not just elderly people. It's, it's people of all ages that are sitting at home and, and maybe don't know who to turn to. Or I heard a lot of stories of people that maybe are surrounded by people every day but still feel lonely and feel like they can't share that with, uh, say, uh, kids or, or siblings because they don't want them to worry. Um, so the whole point of this campaign was telling stories like that but then giving people a way of hearing these stories and and doing something about it. So our call for action really was to get people to sign up, to become befrienders. um, And that means that they can donate some of their time, albeit just even an hour a week, um, to spend time with someone who is suffering from isolation and really create that friendship, that bond that that so many people out there are craving. Um, And yep, that was launched back in February. And the new figures that I got Mm. um, just last week show that nearly 1300 people across scotland have signed up on the back of the campaign which if you had told me that back in february i would never ever have guessed that i think the power of people you can never underestimate it um so that's been absolutely amazing we worked with the charity befriending networks on this one um so how it worked people signed up through the website and they were then their details were then sent on to befriending networks who then is kind of like an umbrella. umbrella company they look out over different charities and they can assign people to different areas match
1: people up so to speak, match yeah. people
0: exactly um and i have a little bit of a clip as well from chief executive uh, sarah van putten and she says she talks a little bit about how the campaign has, has made such a huge difference
5: there has been a huge amount of awareness around it um and i think it, it also helps from the point of view of organizations who are delivering befriending at times also struggle to raise their profile or to get funding to run their services so i think the campaign has been able to raise awareness amongst funders and amongst the general public just about the value of befriending and also for some people who've maybe never thought about that they needed a befriender it's also helped them think about it so yeah from our point of view raising awareness it's been a hugely successful campaign and i think we do have to acknowledge that as a result of that campaign we have got more volunteers out there now who are be- delivering befriending? Who
1: wouldn't have been without it? Have you have you heard talk from anybody who has become a befriender since you you started your appeal? How they've actually got on with it?
0: Yeah, I mean that's been one of my favourite parts of all of this. Has been seeing you know firsthand the the difference that it has made. Um, just two weeks ago, I went to meet a befriending pair who were matched through the campaign. Now, this is 79-year-old John Dixon and 35-year-old Shelley O'Reilly. Um, They're both in Edinburgh and they were matched back in June. Now, Shelley had heard the campaign on the radio, had signed up, headed over to the website, thought that it was something that she really wanted to be involved in. But I was blown away to also hear not only that, but John had also heard the campaign on the radio and had thought, to be honest, that's something I could do with. I could do with being befriended. Um, yeah. So not only did we bring you know Shelley into the mix, we also reached out to to John, who thought, do you know what, I could actually really do with somebody to, to spend time with so I found that amazing I went to meet them and sat down with them um, and I have a little bit of a clip of the interview I did with them as well this has like got to be some of my favourite audio ever <laughs> they're the most hilarious couple they got on like a house on fire and you would think they've honestly been best friends for years but they've only met they only met back in June um, so I'll play you a little bit of, of uh, me talking to them okay. we clicked
11: right away we got on really well
0: Though so it was a perfect match for us wasn't yeah. it and uh, and then just from there we, we just meet up, and um, you know one or two times a week, and we go for dinner, we go for coffee, we've been through Peebles for a drive.
12: Right, well it's just yeah. the work of the job. Yeah. As soon as we yeah, we got together, we just felt quite comfortable. But we were never stuck for words. No,
0: John's a blinder.
12: Probably I talk too much.
0: <laughs> we chat about everything, you know, from politics to the X Factor. Uh, even Love Island has popped up in a conversation yeah. once or twice. So, <laughs> you know, John's quite with it. He's not... Um,
1: not geriatric. Yeah, no,
0: he's not a geriatric <laughs> yet. So, um, <laughs> so that was amazing uh, to see.
1: Right. So what can we do then uh, to, to help? Either you want, to, you know, maybe again, people listening to this, who maybe, maybe that is something I can do. Maybe I can be a befriender. Or indeed the other side of the coin where somebody's sitting thinking, I am lonely. And that takes something for somebody to admit that, first of all.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, the beauty of this campaign is that, you know, this is, is never over and it's never too late to, to play your part. Um, being a part of this has really taught me that everyone can do something to tackle loneliness and isolation. I should stress that befriending is a commitment. You obviously have to be able to give at least an hour a week or an hour every fortnight to this um To to be able to befriend someone. So it's not for everyone, you know, a lot of people live very busy lives. So I guess if you are someone that you think, I maybe don't have that time um, to donate, then. You can do simple things like checking on neighbours. You know, maybe I should have gone next door and and knocked on my elderly neighbour's door and asked her if she wanted me to do her shopping or to sit down and have a cup of tea with her. Even siblings, speak to siblings or or cousins or um, colleagues and just ask people. I think speaking to people and asking them how their day's gone can even go a really, really long way. Um, But as for becoming a befriender, itself you can still head up uh, to our website and click on the news section and there there's a big kind of section called Take the Time where you can click on and you can still sign up on the website and it's it's quite easy, it's quite specific as well, you can write a lot of details about what would work for you, even what type of person you'd like to befriend, what hours you would be free and the befriending networks are really great at setting you up with a charity and a befriendee that works around your schedule. So um, there really is a little bit for everyone uh, to do, I really think everyone can kinda play their own part.
1: Mm. Well, congratulations on the success of the campaign, as you say. It just came about through something simple uh, by walking in your your front door and it's it's amazing how that whole thing has uh, come about and also the amount of people that have uh, signed up. You know, it's just amazing. Was it 1,300 or something? Yeah, 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 it still blows me away. Yeah, absolutely (laughs) astonishing. Uh, Hope, thank you very much indeed for joining us and bringing us up to date on the whole campaign. Thank you.
0: Thank you.
1: So that was our chief reporter, Hope Webb, talking about the campaign. Take the time. You're listening to
10: Scotland's Talkin', the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talkin'.
1: Has your neighbourhood been echoing to the sound of fireworks this weekend? It's bonfire night tomorrow. Many people with dogs will dread this time of the year because of the effect all that noise has on their pets now, there was some serious scientific research done recently which suggested that playing certain kinds of music can help them calm down. Apparently, soft rock and reggae have the most relaxing effects on them. John McLaughlin has written hits for the biggest names in music, like Sir Rod Stewart, Sir Cliff Richard, and he helped the SSBCA put together a CD called Play, pause, relax. Very good title. Good title for a song, John. Good morning to you. <laughs> good morning. <laughs> good morning. So how did this come about then? How did you get involved in this?
13: It was a very, very strange one, as you can well imagine. But um, yeah, I was contacted uh, through, through a, a, a friend, Ian who was doing some work for the SSPCA. And um, he was saying that there was this research going on about how um, the effect that music had on dogs. And I thought... Well, that's massively interesting to me because I'm a massive animal lover vegan and, and uh I've been vegetarian for thirty years and stuff so I was really interested in in, in um how, how dogs react to, to to things in particular I could see the the the, the link between music and animals that I always made that kind of link anyway. So um when I was approached a bit about, about uh, the research that was going on you know, I, I put my hat in the ring, as it were, and uh, and said, "Yeah, yeah, I'd be interested in, in in trying to help with that. And then the idea came up for making an album using all the the information that the the guys at Glasgow University got, which which itself itself was very uh, <laughs> um, interesting. The fact that they discovered that dogs reacted better to reggae music I know. And, and certain music <laughs> and certain BTS. <laughs> Good old Bob Marley, <laughs> Exactly, bless him. Yeah. But it made so much sense to me. Most other people probably think it's mad, but it made so much sense to me. So, yeah, so I wanted to get involved.
1: Well, also with us here at the moment is Julie Mendes-Ferrari, is Head of Education and Policy at the Scottish SPCA, and was heavily involved in the Dog Music Research uh, Project. A very good morning to you, Gillie. Good
11: morning.
1: Yeah, And and getting somebody of John's stature involved, very good, well done. (laughs) I know, amazing for us. I know, I know, yeah. So how has it been received then? How how, how is this whole research and the whole idea? I mean, it's surely not just dogs that get upset with fireworks, so is it?
11: No, it's lots of different types of animals, and that's something that we're working with the University of Glasgow now is looking at the music effects on, for instance, cats and other animals that not only come into our centres, but obviously are in um, household homes as well. Um, But this is a fantastic project. So for the last couple of years, we have been looking at Um, how we can basically decrease the stress of animals that are in our care and ultimately obviously those animals are going into new homes as well and things like fireworks and so on, it's a very scary environment, I've got two dogs myself and one of mine's petrified of fireworks, so he's also been listening to the album the last um, couple of days, Um, but it's been fascinating for us because by looking at dogs' responses to do with their heart rate, um, looking at the behaviour, we found that when we were playing music in a kenneled environment, the dog spent um, less time standing up and barking, more time lying down. Um, And for their sort of aspect, it also meant that there's a better chance of them getting rehomed because they're not jumping off the walls and people tend to walk past those dogs. They were looking a little bit more relaxed in their environment. Um, and for all the animals that we help, we just really want to make sure that it's stressful, um, try and get rid of that stress in the environment that they're living in, and we want to do the same in the home as well.
1: Mm. Uh, John, what you said there about, you know, all coming together and making sense for you, it makes sense when you think, I mean, I, I have it said to me often, when I was when I was on a, a daily show on radio, people would say to me, oh yeah, I, I, my dog listens to you every day, you think, <laughs> great. But people, people do go away, maybe go to work or whatever, And they leave the radio on company for their dogs, so music—it's a logical step, isn't it? I think so. You know, I think you know,
13: dogs and animals in general. I think have got—they make the connection with us, so we make connection to music. So it seems very, very natural. I think you know, and uh, that—that's how I I loved doing it. You know, the the challenge that we had, of course, was trying to make a record that would um, work to keep keep the dogs calm and ones that they've enjoyed and one, we try to make a record that we thought the owners would like to <laughs> <laughs> if they were going to have to listen to this record over and over again so um, that that was definitely our challenge was to, was to, um, was to meet all the criteria but I, I think we've done it I've, I, it's been so nice I've received so much Email and stuff on on social media, just saying, you know, ra- random people just saying I got this record and I really liked it. I was really surprised. <laughs> I got it for the dog, but I really liked it.
1: By the way, Rover <laughs> says thank you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. So, what type of tracks are on it then, apart from from reggae? What, what else have you got?
13: Well, we, we we went through all the criteria. Obviously that I think um soul music was another one that that, that seemed to um, have a, a good effect on, on Cam and Dogs Down. So um we have we, got a few really great soul records on there. Um vocal by Gamu who was um, on the X factor a few years back. So um so we made some really great soul tracks and um you know, kind of soft rock um, you know, again, meeting the criteria, make sure that there was, um, uh, you know, everything added up with what the Glasgow University people had wanted. So, um, yeah, there's soft rock, there's there's um, reggae, there's some soul, um, there's a few ballads on there as well. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> I think it's a record. It's, it's actually like a compilation record for for dogs and uh, and the owners.
1: <laughs> yeah, dogs and owners. And Jilly, you getting good feedback from it through your organisation as well?
11: Yeah, we're getting really good feedback. So um, even people obviously who have bought it when they've been out to our centres and maybe rehomed an animal taken at home, we've had lots of feedback on our social media and everything. And it's great, and um, as John said, I think this is the hardest job for him is to try and make sure that it was something that people wanted to listen to as well as um, their animals in the homes, because otherwise they won't play it. So um, well done on him for creating and such a um, brilliant track. So, um, But no, we've had really good positive feedback, and we'll just see how the research goes and see if we end up
1: other albums and um, yes. you never know for a different animal so who knows another album on the way John yeah exactly <laughs> John McLaughlin oh, and cool. Julie Fernandez, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the programme today so what about you what works for your pets or treble 401? let me know
10: Scotland's talking,
1: the podcast and just a reminder the album title is called play pause relax Very clever. Paws, as in P-A-W-S. That CD is available now for pets and has a a very interesting collection of music that will also appeal to pets owners. Here's one from uh, Patsy Clark, who's just sent this in uh, on my Facebook page, Ali Bally Show. She says, I always leave the radio on for our dog, Toby, and I tell him to. Toby, I'm leaving the radio on for you. Toby, hopefully you enjoyed Bob Marley there. Uh, talking of fireworks, I think that's what John wants to talk about. John, good morning.
12: A very good morning, and certainly a relaxed day with radio day. Absolutely, yes. the best music.
1: Absolutely, yes. So, what do you want to talk about then?
12: Well, I think it's about time fireworks alley. If you go into A and E, you're still getting people coming in blinded, burns to the face, scalding of the hands, and various other parts of the body. It's not called Guy Fawkes Night anymore. It's called Bonfire Night. Mm. Now, police officers will tell you, fire officers will tell you, paramedics will tell you, doctors will tell you, and pet owners. I think it's about time we ban fireworks only for display under supervision,
1: Ali. Yeah, I, I think the organised displays that um, are now cropping up, whether, you know, some, some clubs and some uh, uh, associations have official fireworks displays that help them raise some money for their organisations because they can charge for it and they can sell uh, some snacks and things at it. So that that's a good way, or, or indeed some councils organise their own displays across Scotland. But uh, for general sale, is there really a need for them, John? I don't think so, do you?
12: I don't think so. Um, as I said, being maimed, Coming up to Christmas is not nice. Being blinded coming up to Christmas is not nice. Come on, let's get some common sense here.
1: And also I think the um, the figures, and I'm sure it's something we can talk about on another show, but the figures that have come out this week on the amount of attacks on paramedics and, and our emergency services who turn up at various events. But, we, we, you know, we talk also about uh, fireworks displays. They're called out um, to a bonfire and they get pelted with stones. And What is what is that all about, you know?
12: Ali, it's madness when bus drivers refuse to actually get in their bus and drive to get the Joe public around. Well, that's telling you
1: something, Ali. It is, and it's wrong that our... Uh, emergency services, and indeed anybody um, doing a public service. Now, I I know what uh, uh, John is talking about there. It was in the news recently um, about a housing estate and about a city bus company uh, having to withdraw buses because bus drivers were refusing to go through uh, certain housing schemes due to attacks. It just really is madness. It really is. And, And, you know, I just wonder, going back to the emergency services, how those... Uh, let's say they are teenagers, some of them are not even reached their teens who are are committing acts like this. How they'll feel when they've, you know, if they're one of the ones that are injured in an accident or whatever, and, you know, the the paramedics or the fire brigade are held up because they're busy dealing with something that they're being called out to and they're actually getting attacked. It's... it's, uh, it's, it's not a good part of our society. That's it for Scotland's talking today. Uh, I'm Ali Balley. Thank you very much indeed for your company. Thanks for your calls and your tweets and your emails. We've had loads of them today, of course, with uh, our guest in the first hour, uh, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon. And as we said at the top of the hour, she doesn't um, say, you know, we, do, we don't tell her what we're going to talk about. She just takes the subjects as they're thrown to her. So thanks to her for doing that.